Are you ready this morning? Yes. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, 1 through 10 will be our verses this morning. Now, I'll remind you that last time we selected a bit of an unusual title among the many terms that the Bible, or phrases the Bible uses to describe God's people. We are called the body of Christ. We're referred to as a royal priesthood. We're even referred to as a chosen generation, but we're also called a peculiar people. Now, we noted last week that the meaning of the word peculiar isn't weirdo or oddball, but rather the words translated in the King James as peculiar and special in the New King James actually means being beyond the usual. Being beyond the usual, the word is also translated as, or defined rather, as a purchased possession. And listen, we are purchased possessions, which makes us beyond the usual. We're not like everybody else. We have been transformed by the renewing of our mind, by our knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 1, 4-6, John writes to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is and who is to come, Jesus is coming again, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and ruler over kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion, Forever and ever. Amen. Listen, we were purchased with a price that we could not pay ourselves. And that price was innocent blood. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So innocent blood runs through none of our veins. And therefore, we needed a perfect sacrifice to be offered on our, our behalf. And one that could wash away all of our sins and make us to be beyond the usual as kings and priests to God our Father, who alone deserves glory and dominion over all creation forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now, we noted three things as peculiar people last week. The first was this. Christians handle everything differently than the world. Christians handle everything differently than the world. Now, remember, Paul was writing from prison. And he was saying, I rejoice in my sufferings because I've received a stewardship from God. And this is what gave him cause for rejoicing. And we also noted that the world is vainly trying to end suffering because they want nothing to do with it. And yet the peculiar people of God rejoice when they have been counted worthy to suffer as their Messiah and Savior has suffered. Now we also noted last time that Christians are the only people who can actually change. Now, we did mention that it is true that unsaved people change all the time to a lesser degree. They discipline themselves to change bad habits. They discipline themselves to accomplish a desired goal or achieve a certain performance level. But they themselves remain exactly the same, even in the midst of all those changes. Only the Christian is an actual new creation who begins being beyond the usual once they are born again. After all, Paul writing to the peculiar people of God in Ephesians 2.1 says, And you he made alive, 
who were dead in trespasses and sins. Listen, only God's peculiar people have actually changed into someone that is completely new. And listen, we're not trying to discipline ourselves. We've actually changed. And yes, there's discipline in the life of the Christian. Of course, we need to discipline ourselves uh, to follow after God's plan of purposes for our lives. But what's different about us is that when he saves us, he gives us the desire to do so. And he also convicts us of sin when we don't. There was First there was 20 amens, and then there was one. About the, we should be thankful for conviction. Amen? Now lastly, we noted that as God's peculiar people, the church is the only entity whose purpose is to strive to save their enemies. We are the only group on the planet that has that as our sole purpose. Remember, Paul had pointed out, we were once enemies. We were alienated from God in our mind by wicked works, but now we have been reconciled to God by Christ's physical body through death to present us holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. Those are pretty good attributes to have behind your name. Free from accusation without blemish, having overcome basic sins is what that means. And remember in verse 28, Paul repeated the phrase, every man three times, talking about the scope of our mission field. He said, warn every man, teach every man, hoping for the end result that we would present every man, every person, perfect or completed in Christ Jesus. Now, what do we warn every person of? The wages of sin. And that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because it's only then that they can see their need for the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And our text this Father's Day Sunday is actually a revelation of Paul's father's heart for this church. And how he loves this church that he never even visited. He didn't know personally any of the people there other than the pastor. And he also mentions Laodicea, and he has the same burden for them that he'll mention in verse 1. Now, Paul will mention that he is greatly contended for them, even though he's never met them, and even though he's never visited them, because there was a battle that was raging between two kingdoms and spreading much like it is today. And Paul was concerned about what was happening in Colossae, about what was seeking to infiltrate the church, and we should be concerned about what's happening within the church today as well, because we are the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. And the fact is, our title this morning, and what Paul's efforts are going to be, is to divide between philosophy or facts. And this is much of what we are encountering today, philosophy or facts. Now, remember we found a few weeks ago about the principle of bivalence. And bivalence is simply the rule, if you will, that any theory, proposition, or truth claim is either true or false. It cannot be neither, nor can it be both. It's either true or false. If you say thus and so, it's either true or false. It can't be neither, nor can it be both. Something cannot be true and false. Amen? Now, philosophy is defined as the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. That's what philosophy is. It's the fundamental study of uh, the nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. And Paul is writing at a time where philosophy was still heavily influencing even Roman culture. Uh, the, the Greek philosophers who had lived a few cent centuries before, three to five centuries before, of men like Socrates and his disciple Plato and his student Aristotle were still having an impact on culture in that day. And Paul is going to draw a hard line between philosophy and facts as they pertain to biblical truth. And philosophy's efforts to infiltrate the thinking of the church and change its fundamental nature of Christian knowledge, reality, and the reason 
for our existence. And listen, whether it's the Gnostics or the Judaizers, there were those who were replacing facts with their own philosophy, and people are doing that in the church today. And we need to be aware of it, and we need to beware of it. And that will be the focus on our time this morning. So let's expose the difference between these two, philosophy and facts this morning, and draw a hard line between them, as Paul did in our thinking, which our thinking will always impact our behavior. So would you stand and read with me, please, from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Philippians 2, Philippians, Colossians 2, Philippians is a good book too, 1 through 10. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving." Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. And Lord, we thank you that we, through Christ, have access to wisdom that comes from above. We thank you that it is pure, as we will see this morning, and it's pure wisdom we are after today. We're not here to hear a speech. We're not here uh, to be made to feel better about our fallen condition or anything else. We're here to, today, Lord, to hear from you. And would you give us ears to hear what your Spirit is saying in relation especially to that which is impacting the church so greatly in these last days. Help us to that end, we pray, to discern between philosophy and facts this morning as it relates to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now again, Paul mentions that he had had a conflict for them, and that word means a struggle or contention. It's also the Greek word that would be used to describe a place where competitive events would be held, and the church had become just such a place. There was competition between philosophy and the Word of God. The philosophy, some say, of the Gnostics was creeping into the church and trying to compete with apostolic doctrines. So Paul arms the church with truth, having informed them that he was contending for them, even though he never even met them or the saints at Laodicea, and he hoped that this would be an encouragement to them. And as I read this, I couldn't help but think uh, some years ago, uh, someone had told me that, Pastor Chuck listens to you every Sunday morning before first service at Costa Mesa, and he loves your preaching. As a matter of fact, he said you are kind of a preacher born out of due time. And uh, you know what? 
I thought that was awesome. Pastor Chuck listens to me? Good grief. It encouraged me. It warmed my heart. It blessed me. And can you imagine as a church in the Lycus Valley, a small town, really an unknown town in a sense in comparison to the great cities uh, within that particular region of places like Ephesus and the great Apostle Paul writes you a letter and says, you're on my heart thinking about you. Just that in and of itself would be an encouragement that Paul was contending for them, that he cared about them, and this was encouraging to their hearts. And he then begins to equip them because he cares about them. He informs them that his contending for them, which implies prayer, obviously, included that they be knit together in love, which is how the world will know we are the Lord's disciples. And then he lists some of the facts about being part of the body of Christ, God's peculiar people. He says, one, we have the full assurance of understanding. We have the full assurance of understanding. Then he tells him, we have the knowledge of the mystery of God, both the Father and the Son. Because we know the Son, Jesus said, you've seen the Father also in John 14. We also have all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge that can come only through knowing Him. These are things that we all have as the body of Christ. And this is what Paul is reminding the church of, and for good reason, as we'll see in a few moments. Now, James says this in 3, 13 to 18, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly sensual, and then he throws down the gauntlet, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of good mercy, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And listen, the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence has a thousand different directions it can lead in, but the principle of bivalence says they cannot all be right. They cannot all be true. That's impossible. Nor can they be both true and false. They're one or the other. And if your study of these things, your study of the nature of knowledge, reality, and existence doesn't begin with God, you'll end up with a skewed understanding and philosophical propositions to support them. And as Christians, we all have the hidden treasures of the things the carnal world seeks to know and understand but cannot because we have God's Word and we study God's Word. And because we study God's Word, we know our origin. Because we study God's Word, we know the meaning of life. Because we study God's Word, God's Word, we know the cause and standards of morality. And because we study God's Word, we know our ultimate destiny. And the world is still searching for and offering propositions to answer these four big questions of life. And they're coming up with things like what's called RTP, the Representative Theory of Perception. Now this theory proposes that you only see what you perceive in your mind. Well, I perceive this morning that I'm at Calvary Chapel Tustin, but you're not all really there. <laughs> I didn't say you're not all there. I said you're not all really here. 
because it's my perception and I have created this reality. Somebody's been watching too many Matrix movies. <laughs> and therefore, under the representative theory of perception, what you perceive in your mind is what you actually see, which means every person's reality is different. Now, there's a medical term for that theory. <laughs> you know what it is? Cuckoo. <laughs> That's nuts. You want to hear some truth? Yeah. Here it is. Listen this morning. The benefits of knowing God cannot be imitated or equaled. Amen. The benefits of knowing God cannot be imitated or equaled. Listen, we don't have to wonder where we came from in the beginning God created. Amen. We don't need to wonder about the meaning of life. It is to come to know God and be reconciled to Him. We don't need to define morality. It's already been defined for us in God's Word. And our destiny is not a mystery because in Christ we're going to spend eternity in heaven with Him. Now the psalmist says, King David writing in 37, 23 to 25, that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And David says, I've been young and now I'm an old man, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Somebody say hallelujah. Now listen to Psalm 8411. The psalmist says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then the famed passage of Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His what? His benefits. Listen, the benefits of knowing God cannot be imitated or equaled. See what the psalmist says about those benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfies our mouth with good things so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. I, after a long hiatus from going to the gym, I went back to the gym this week, and um, in the first couple of days, uh, my youth was not renewed. <laughs> I was hurting. I, I went the first day and I thought, I better take a light. I've been going to the gym a long time. I'll just take it easy. I'll be fine. And I was fine the next day. So the next day I thought, okay, I'm bumping the weights up. And I bumped the weights up and then I couldn't even sleep. I was so sore. Just doing the Frankenstein thing, you know. So, so I'm ready for my youth to be renewed, aren't you? Now, listen. This is the life experience of the child of God. What we just read in Psalm 103 are the benefits of knowing God. He forgives our iniquities. He heals our diseases. Ultimately, some people, well, I prayed for somebody and they weren't healed. They died. Uh, then they were healed. Because they're never going to be sick again. Left us painful and sorrowful and all those things. That is true. And the Bible deals with that as well. But listen, he's also redeemed our life from destruction and crowned us with loving kindness and tender mercies. He satisfied our mouth with good things. And our youth is renewed like the eagles. This is our life as the peculiar people of God. Amen. Those in the world have to make their way through these things on their own. They have to come up with things like representative theory of perception, which is <laughs> now, this is what Paul is contending for the Christians in Colossae to understand and to embrace that there is nothing equal to what you already have. 
So there's no point in listening to the philosophers. Paul is saying, listen, whoever it may be that was seeking to infiltrate the church, you don't need the Gnostics, Colossa. You don't need the Judaizers, Colossa. We don't need them today, CCT. We don't need people to come and put their spin on things because what we have in Christ is the full treasury of the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus and wisdom in Him as well. Now, Paul begins to address the enemy's tactics in their efforts to infiltrate what cannot be equaled in verses 4 to 7. Paul mentions persuasive words intended to deceive. Now, the Greek word translated as words here is not the typical logos, which means word or words. It is uh, pithonologia, which means enticing words. It can also mean discourse with the intention to lead others into error. And there are people who are practicing this in our world today, intentionally leading people into error to gain a collective following to their particular philosophy of the Christian faith and the church's practices. And in Ephesians 1.3, what we are reminded of is that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, what's the next word? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Peter's second epistle would open up with this greeting. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us what? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And these reverses reflect what Paul had said in our first section. What they have, what we have in Christ is all we need. Because it cannot be equal. And there's no imitation of it. And he says, I'm reminding you of these things, lest someone should deceive you with enticing words intended to lead you into error. Now he follows this by noting that while he's not there, he is glad to see the good order and the steadfastness in the Lord that they are maintaining. Because they are those who have received Christ, and he admonishes them to walk in him, which he then describes as rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, abounding with thanksgiving. Now he notes at the end of verse 7 that these things were things they had been taught. And listen, what was taught in the first century needs to be taught in the 21st century. Because the word of God doesn't change, because Jesus is the word and he changes not. Amen? Now, that includes this in John 6, to 45. Jesus said this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father does what? Comes to me. Now, let me clean something up here real quick. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Doesn't mean he only draws some and rejects others. What that means is that nobody would come if he wasn't drawing. And he is drawing all men to himself, yet some refuse the invitation. He says, the prophets wrote, and they shall all be taught by God. And then he adds, if anyone has actually heard from God, they're going to come to me. They're going to follow after him. Now, we hear a lot today about the equality of religions and everyone's version of God has to be right because it's their perception of who God is, who he or she may be. Well, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, everyone who has heard from the true and living God 
will be taught by him and come to Jesus. I need to say that again. Everyone who has heard from the true and living God will be taught by him and come to Jesus. Amen. Now Paul adds here that those who come to Christ are going to walk in him, meaning to live a life that parallels and reflects the life of Jesus, rooted and built up, which means strengthened and increased, and established, meaning to be made sure in the faith. Now, here's something I think we need to wrap our brains around today, and we're going to talk a little bit about this and what's been going on down through the centuries and even right up to our day in a few moments. But here's something I think we need to recognize, and it's happening all around us today, uh, especially in the government, but also in the church. And listen, the greater the percentage of truth, the more convincing is a lie. Mm -hmm. The greater the percentage of truth, the more convincing is a lie. Spiritually persuasive words are uh, much in practice today because they use a lot of the same terminology that we use as well. They're actually persuasive because they contain truth. They use the same verbiage with the intention to deceive. Now think about this. The Jehovah Witnesses talk about Jesus. But Jesus is one who used to be Michael the Archangel. And then he came to the earth and walked with Jesus. And then when he ascended, he became Michael the Archangel. Again, uh, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's a false Jesus. The Mormons, these hard-working, wonderful, family-oriented people, they talk about Jesus, but their Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. It's not the same Jesus. And it's only the Jesus of the Bible that can actually save the human soul. I watched a Muslim cleric the other day tell a room filled with thousands of Muslim men that you have to believe in Jesus to be a good Muslim. Because Jesus was a good Muslim. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's words with the intention to deceive about the personage of Christ. And this is why John the Beloved would write in 1 John 4, 1 to 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. What are we going to test the spirits against? The Word of God. Test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, say every spirit. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. Now listen, that doesn't mean that you have to believe that a personage by the name of Yeshua was born in Bethlehem and lived in Nazareth, and he is a historical figure. That's not what it means. The word confess means to see of or speak of as the same. In other words, who see, whoever sees Jesus as the Bible presents Jesus, this is the Spirit of God. And remember what John said and what he means by Jesus coming in the flesh? He said in 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember in Jewish culture, the firstborn son was equal to the Father. And that's why the uh, Pharisees actually had him crucified, because he said he was God when he said he was God's son. 
that Jesus, who was an ordinary man, until he had the Christ Spirit come upon him at his baptism, is not the Jesus of the Bible. Amen. Nor is the Jesus who was a good teacher, but not God. Nor is the Jesus of the Bible a phantom spirit who inhabited a body. The Jesus of the Bible is the Son of God who dwelt among us and other humans beheld His glory. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And the more truth continue, or contained in lies about Him, the more effective they are at deceiving with the lie. And in Matthew 16, 13 to 16, when Jesus came into the region at Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, uh, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said in response to this proclamation of Peter? He said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father told you that. Remember what we read earlier in John 6? Whoever comes to the Father, whoever is taught by God, comes to Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus was saying at the Caesarea Philippi encounter. And this is what the first century church was taught because it's true. And this is what the 21st century church should be teaching because it's true. There is no such thing as a form of Christianity that has a variation on the personage of Jesus Christ. He is who the Bible says He is, or you're talking about somebody else. It's as simple as that. And cults love to use Christian terminology to make their claims sound legitimate. Their words are persuasive because the more truth you pack into a lie, the more people there are who are going to believe it. And Paul thus far has been dealing with the facts of the Christian faith in relation to the person of Christ laced with encouragement to the church to continue in good order and steadfastness. And he now in verses 8 to 10 begins to address the counterfactual aspect of this uh, dialogue, so to speak. And he switches gears and begins to warn the church of becoming legalistic in verse 11 and beyond. Now, he opens verse 8 with a warning. He says, beware. Beware lest anyone cheat you. And the, the word translated as cheat is again kind of an interesting word. So the gogeo, and it means to carry away as captive. Or it can mean to lead away from the truth. And the vehicle he warns of with the potential to carry them away captive and lead them away from truth is fourfold. He describes it as philosophy, empty deceit, the traditions of men, and the elementary principles of the world. Now, philosophy we already define. Empty deceit means ruthless delusion. Are some of the delusions in our world today ruthless? Yes. Think about the delusion that it's a blob of tissue inside a woman right. instead of a human baby. What are the actions because of that delusional thinking? Aren't they ruthless? Yeah, yeah. The destruction of a baby? All these things that we see going on today. Ruthless delusion. Traditions of men simply means human precepts. And precepts is a word often used in reference to God's word in places like Psalm 119.4 where you have commanded us to keep your what? Precepts diligently. And Paul says there are those who want to replace God's precepts with their own human principles. And lastly, Paul tells them, beware of elementary worldly principles. And the word principles means an orderly arrangement. 
And he combats the counterfactual with the fact that in Christ, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus and that Christians are complete in him who is the head of all things. Now, that means we don't need the ponderings of the philosophers today. But we do need to be aware of ruthless decisions being made around us. We are not governed, nor is the truth, the truth defined by human precepts or what's popular with society or culturally acceptable. And the way that the world is trying to arrange the person of Christ within its own system is something we are to reject completely as counterfactual. After all, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete or mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews says this along the same lines in 13.20-21. Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you what? Complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then James adds this, the Lord's half-brother, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This fullness, this maturity cannot be arrived at through any other means. We are complete only in Christ. And we are to beware of the things that seek to lead us away from that fact and into philosophy through the means of empty deceit, traditions of men, and worldly principles. Now, it's interesting that in the Greek, the word translated from uh, or into principles is also the word that would be used to describe the elementary particles that supposedly self-arranged that we all came from. So Paul is saying, beware of that. Now, was that the intention of the Bible? I don't know, but I like it. We are to beware of teaching evolution. Amen. Now, here's our final truth. Jesus Christ is not a concept to be interpreted. He is God who should be worshipped. Jesus Christ is not a concept to be interpreted. He is God who should be worshipped. And our world today is trying to reduce Jesus to equal status with the heads of religions. This is empty deceit. <clears throat> our world today is trying to replace the concrete precepts of God's word with human tradition. This is delusion. Our world today is trying to deny that Jesus is God. This is Antichrist. Jesus Christ is not a concept. Jesus Christ is not a philosophical proposition or interpretation of historical information. Jesus is not the traditional belief of a religious group. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is God, and any other perception of him is counterfactual. It is not true. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. In other words, his death was foretold, and the reason for it as well. 
and that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have died. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Now listen, Muhammad's dead. And he hasn't been seen or heard from since. Buddha is dead. And he hasn't been seen or heard from since. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle are dead. And they haven't been heard from or seen since. Let's move a little forward in time. L. Ron Hubbard is dead. And he has not been heard from or seen since Jesus is alive and he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily as intercession for us. He's not a concept. He's not a philosophical pondering subject to interpretation or subjection to human traditions. He is God. And as God, he is worthy of all worship and praise. And anything other than that is counterfactual and something to beware of. You don't think philosophy and philosophy of ministry or church practice is present with us today? Well, something happened right over in good old Anaheim, California, my place of birth and upbringing this past week, when the Southern Baptist Convention held their annual meeting. Well, there's a rather large Southern Baptist church in South Orange County with uh, the pastor of a man who recently retired, uh, and uh, he was often dubbed to be America's pastor. And in the past few years, he's hired three women pastors, which goes against the Word of God and also the Southern Baptist Convention. So the Southern Baptist Convention was going to vote on whether or not to remove him, the largest church in their denomination. Well, the pastor of the church got up and said this, this past week in Anaheim, at the Anaheim Convention Center, he said, now listen, remember, the more truth you can pack into a lie, the better it sounds, and the more people who will believe it. Listen to what he said. We need to quit bickering over non-essentials and get back to preaching the gospel to a lost and dying world. That's what he said. You know what? Should we be bickering over non-essentials? No. It's a waste of time, right? Should we be focused on preaching the gospel to a lost and dying world? Absolutely. That's right. It's true, isn't it? It sounds good, right? And we want to get behind it, yes? I'm glad that you're hesitating because you know something's coming. The problem is, in his philosophical opinion and ministry approach, what he deems to be non-essential is a concrete biblical precept. And that is that God has called, and listen here, and I want to straighten some stuff out here, that God has called men to oversee the church exclusively. <gasps> That's misogynistic. Let, let me just deal with that here real quick in two ways. One, if God said only blue-eyed people can be pastors, your opinion means nothing. If that's what God said, that's the way it is. And you cannot accuse the Bible of being misogynistic because the fact is Jesus lifted the women of his day up and he's been lifting them up ever since and gifting them with the same exact gifts that he's given men. 
and using them in great and awesome ways. And he has just limited their function within the church to everything except for the pastorate. And that's why Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said in 2 Timothy 3, if any man desires the office of the bishop, the pastor, he desires a good thing. He must be the husband of one wife. Now people say, well, that can be interpreted. No, it can't. It is interpreted. It doesn't mean a man or a woman. It means a man. He, because he has a wife. Right? So they're trying to mush that, all that stuff together today. He must be the husband of one wife. He must have his own house in order. He must be of good character and having overcome basic sins or without glaring defect is the phrase that the Bible uses. And listen, for those who say the Bible is misogynistic, Jesus operated in a culture where the value of a woman was much like that of the Muslim faith today. It was worth half of that of a man. And that's why the rabbis prayed, I thank you, God, that I was not born a woman or a Gentile. Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to meet a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, and I'm going to call out the men who were falsely accusing her. And you know what? That story is so misunderstood. Well, we shouldn't say anything about anybody's sin because Jesus said, you know, where are your accusers, a woman, so I don't accuse you? Listen, they threw at him. The law says this woman caught in adultery should be stoned. What do you say? They were trying to trap him. So Jesus said, well, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. Now that has been interpreted as unless you're sinless, you got no business saying anything about anybody else's sin. That's not what it means. I'll tell you what it means. The law said if you caught him, you got to stone him. And Jesus said, none of you were there. You're all false accusers. You're all trapping this woman to exploit her and trap me, and not one of you, according to the law, are qualified to throw the first stone. Because the eyewitnesses only could throw the first stone. Jesus said, which one of you is not without sin? Right here, right now, throw the first stone. And listen, listen, here's one of the, my favorite parts. And from the oldest to the youngest, they departed. You know why? Because the old guys got it first. Oops. I didn't. The people that set her up, they saw it. I didn't see it. I got to go. And it finally it clicked with the young guys. And what was Jesus doing? Did he, did he say, hey, you know what? We're cool. Peace out. He said, go your way and said no more. He didn't act like she hadn't done anything wrong. And listen, Jesus went out of his way to meet a woman, a Samaritan woman, who no other Jew would even cut through that territory. But Jesus said, I got an appointment with a woman that I need to meet at a well of water because she's thirsting for something she can't find in this world. And I know when she finds what she's looking for in me, she's going to go tell everybody in her town about me. Amen. So Jesus elevated this woman at the well. Who were the first to the tomb? The women. Who were the last at the cross? The women. Don't tell me the Bible is misogynistic. The Bible has just said the office of the pastor, just like that of the Levite, every Levite priest was a man. Every apostle was a man. And God said every pastor is to be a man. And if you come up and stand before the Southern Baptist Council and say, that's not essential, you're saying, I'll pick and choose what parts of the Bible I want to believe and adhere to. And that's allowing philosophy to override biblical doctrine. Amen. And we're going to take the same attitude as Paul. We'll have nothing of it. Amen. 
we're going to do what the Bible says. We're going to follow and adhere to Scripture. And I'm sorry if I got a little emotional there for a moment because I'm really not. <laughs> but this stuff just frosts me. <laughs> Pretty sure I know what that means. I think it makes me mad. I think that's what that's supposed to mean. But it does. It does. And listen, today, because culture says this or that, who cares what culture says? This is what matters. This is the sum total of all wisdom and knowledge. And listen, I, I don't... I don't like many are the afflictions of the righteous. I don't like in this life you will have tribulation. But I'm not going to be so pompous as to think I can rewrite the book and change what it says. And every word of God is pure and the entirety of his word is truth, including things that go against culture and society rejects. That's not where we get our information. That's philosophy. And that's efforts to lead away from the truth. Philosophy or facts? I'm going with facts. Because the one who knows everything, wrote everything that's in this book, somebody say, Amen. Amen.